Hey guys, good afternoon. Welcome to Serverless Architectural Patterns and Best Practices. My name is Drew Dennis. I'm a solutions architect with AWS based in Texas. Any Texans in the audience? All right. Uh, with me today, I have my colleague Maitreya Ranganath and also from BMC, Ajoy Kumar with the R&D group at BMC. Our agenda today, we're going to focus on four common, well-adopted, in use today by existing AWS customer patterns. Uh, I'm going to take you through the first couple of patterns, which are a three-tier web architecture and batch processing. And then Maitreya is going to come up and take you guys through stream processing and operations automation. Our hopes are that you can take these patterns back with you to help you identify potential use cases and workloads in your environments where they might be applicable. Uh, next, Ajoy will come up and talk to you about BMC's specific use case of one of these patterns. I'm sure you guys have all heard of BMC, right, and are familiar with some of their products. Um, and and it's, I think it's really a great use case and a great example of how a, a customer, a large customer like BMC, can actually modernize existing products and applications for their customers, um, as well as add new features around uh, security operations and compliance uh, auditing. Before we get into those items, though, I want to just do some brief level sets around serverless applications, kind of talk a little bit about what they are, um, what makes them different from traditional applications. So as the name implies, and as I'm sure you're all aware, serverless applications are comprised of services where servers, operating systems, containers are completely removed and abstracted from you. Uh, Unlike deploying applications on EC2 where you have to, uh, you know, you don't have to manage the operating system with a serverless service. Uh, you don't have to make sure it's healthy, it's performant, all of those types of concerns. There's also a class of services at AWS that we call managed services, here we being the three of us for this presentation. Um, and these are services like Elasticsearch and Elastic Cache, RDS or Redshift, where servers are still very much a part of the service and the model. When you deploy services uh, within those products, you actually are concerned with the number of servers that you deploy, potentially the role of those servers, where they're located. So servers are still very much there and you need to be concerned with them from a scaling perspective as well, typically. With serverless services, you don't have to worry about any of those types of concerns. Secondly, with serverless services, they're automatically or, or inherently sit at a regional level within AWS infrastructure. And what that means is they're automatically aware of all availability zones in a particular region where they're deployed. So you never have to worry about high availability and fault tolerance. Those types of concerns are taken for you. And that's one of the big reasons why serverless applications are becoming so popular now. And then probably the third important distinction I want to point out uh, is the unit of scale with serverless applications is different. It's not servers. It's actually functions, and particularly Lambda functions. So the four patterns that we're going to be presenting to you today are actually all very much, you know, Lambda functions are very much at the heart of those patterns, right? And they really are the unit of scale. So and before we proceed and go into the four patterns, I want to briefly talk about Lambda a little bit because all of the patterns will leverage them. A Lambda function is a unit of work that's comprised of your code that responds to individual requests and events. Now, as those events and requests grow, the Lambda functions will grow as well. And as they shrink, the Lambda functions will shrink. So you never run the risk of over-provisioning or under-provisioning Lambda functions for your application. That's a really nice thing. Economically, that means you never pay for idle. That's also very nice. And what I really like about Lambda functions is they really make it easy for you to not worry as much about some of the mundane and boring aspects of an application like logging and operational monitoring. There are facilities built into Lambda to handle a lot of those things for you, and it's very extensible to add additional functionality in those areas. And I think Lambda functions always also take care of some of the really, really difficult things about applications, being Horizontal, horizontal scale in your applications. Building that out yourself is extremely difficult to do, and it's something that Lambda provides essentially out of the box. You could have a Lambda function that's as simple as a single line of code, uh, and 
as a single request comes in, that line of code will execute. But if a thousand simultaneous requests come in for that, it will scale horizontally to answer and handle all thousand of those requests. So it really allows you to kind of skip the boring parts and skip the hard parts, if you know what I mean. Lambda is also stateless, and there's a, a lot of conjecture about this, I think, out in the industry right now. And really what that means at a very high level is you should always store state outside of Lambda. Any state that Lambda creates or needs to use in order to run, use one of our persistent data stores services, like DynamoDB or S3 as an example, to interact with that state information. There's no affinity with the underlying hardware in Lambda functions, or at least you shouldn't assume that. And if you have a Lambda function that interacts with the local file system on the host where it's deployed, or spawns a child process, or maybe even executes some of your own custom binaries that you've packaged with the Lambda function, which are all possible with Lambda, you should never assume that subsequent invocations of that Lambda function are going to be able to use those things. Okay? So that's what we mean by Lambda is stateless. Lambda functions are deployed inside of a container. And when that container is deployed, you know, the function will execute, and then that container will remain for a period of time. Now, we don't publicize or, or provide information about how long that Lambda function or that container will, will be available. So that's why you can't plan on state and reusing any of these artifacts that we mentioned. When these Lambda functions are deployed inside of containers, there's an initialization phase that happens. And that's going to be things like downloading the code and all the code dependencies from S3, attaching ENIs if you want your Lambda function to run inside of a VPC, and running the initialization code. We call this a, a cold start process. Now, when you define a Lambda function, one of the things you have to define is the handler or a function in your code that each invocation of that Lambda function will execute. And we call that kind of a, a Lambda function that, that's warm, will just execute that particular function. So in this example you see here, and this is just example code, don't try to reproduce this, I've removed some things so it'll, it'll fit on the slide, but in this example, we're importing some Python modules at the top of the code, and then we actually establish a database connection with a relational database. And we do those things outside of the handler. So those things will execute during a cold start, or as that container is initially deployed onto the host. Then for every invocation, we'll only execute the code inside that handler that you see at the bottom of this, okay? So there's concern sometimes about cold starts and whether or not they'll affect your application. And the answer to that, whether or not they will affect your application, the answer to that is really, you know, maybe. I mean, it depends on your application. If your application is fairly consistent with the number of Lambda functions that it executes and the frequency is reasonable at which it executes those, then, you know, cold starts and, and you know, may not be too much of a concern for you because that's going to be a very small percentage of your overall invocations. But if you have a lot of disparity and, you know, you, you might have 100 Lambda functions and then 1,000 right after that and then a period of a lot of inactivity, then cold starts can be an issue, right? So you want to make sure that you, you're aware of, you know, how the cold starts function. If you want to improve your cold start times, uh, you know, minimize the code outside of the handler obviously is one approach. Make your package as small as possible. Remove any unnecessary dependencies so that that download from S3 will happen as quickly as possible. And VP, for VPC support with ENIs, only use that if you need that VPC support. That's optional. And we've certainly seen customers that attach those to Lambda functions without needing it to be attached. So that will just add to the latency of your cold start times. And customers that really need to manage these cold start times, one strategy is to keep them warm with CloudWatch events. I'm sure many of you are familiar with CloudWatch events, but you can schedule functions and invocations of those functions with that. And that's a really good way and approach to kind of keep them warm if cold starts are a concern for you. From a local file system perspective, Lambda functions have access to slash TMP on the host. It's 512 megs of scratch space that you can pretty much use to do whatever you want to do. Uh, I was working with a customer a couple months ago, and they wanted to take documents, PDF files, office documents, whatever, convert that into text. So we downloaded that to slash TMP before we sent it off to that service to convert that information into text. And that was really nice because if there's an error, we don't have to re-download that from S3. We can retry for the duration of that Lambda function. 
This particular example shows uh, Node.js example of using FFmpeg and taking a video file and extracting a frame to a JPEG, storing that locally before it uploads it to a service. Another best practice with Lambda is to use custom metrics with CloudWatch, often overlooked. It's really very simple to create CloudWatch custom metrics, just one API call put metric data. And you can absolutely store any kind of information that's important to your application in a CloudWatch custom metric. It could be business-related. It could be related, related to the operations of that function. It's completely up to you. But this is a very useful thing to do. Keep in mind, the scale of your application may dictate how you send those custom metrics into CloudWatch. Uh, you, here's, uh, I've mentioned on this slide a few account limits that are defaults for putting metric data into CloudWatch. So if your scale extends these, these can be increased by making a support call into, into tech support. Another approach for very, very large-scale ingestion of CloudWatch metrics is to send that information to Kinesis, you know, and aggregate it before you deliver that into CloudWatch. So that's something we've seen a lot of customers adopt. Okay. Now I'm going to go through the, the first of our pattern, which is a three-tiered web application. Here's an example of the three-tiered web application. Uh, essentially, static content is up at the top. You can see in, in red, Amazon S3 and CloudFront for content delivery of those static artifacts that exist in, in S3. And then API calls that the client makes go through API Gateway, which in turn can do a lot of things, interact with various AWS services, Commonly, they'll interact with Lambda functions that do a variety of different things. Uh, in this case, and in this example, leveraging DynamoDB as a persistent data store. Now, there are many variations to this particular pattern. You know, we're talking about a web application here, and that can take up a lot of different forms. It could be a, a mobile backend, as an example, and, and you could add SNS to this architecture or pattern to send push notifications to mobile devices. Uh, you know, it could be a microservices application and approach where you have, you know, hundreds even API gateway methods def defined and backed by Lambda functions. So you can apply this same pattern to, th to that use case as well. Now, when you think about deploying a serverless web application within your organizations, somebody might come up to you and say, well, what about security, right? How, how does it handle security? Or how do you handle operations of that? Um, or hand, how do you handle deployments and, and versions uh, of deployments to, to that environment? This, those things are a little bit different, right, with a serverless application than what you might be traditionally used to. For example, a three-tiered web application, a traditional three-tiered web application, we usually have subnets with firewalls between the subnets, right, to restrict access to the different layers. So things are a little bit different with serverless applications. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So here's that same pattern. And from a security perspective with S3, uh, you have bucket policies and ACLs, as I'm sure you're all aware, to control access to those artifacts that exist on S3. You could limit access, for example, within a VPC if it's an internal application. CloudFront has a feature called Origin Access Identity, which ensures that only CloudFront can get access to that, those S3 resources. There's also geo-restriction geo capabilities with CloudFront and the ability for CloudFront to deliver private content to your users through signed URLs or signed cookies. And CloudFront has inherent DDoS protection built in. From an API gateway perspective, there's throttling, which can certainly help. And if you're using this for actually delivering an API, then there's great features like quotas and usage plans that you can leverage as well. But API gateway also has some really nice authorization features. Uh, if you want to require some sort of authorization in order to, to get access to the methods delivered by API Gateway, then there's three ways to do that. One of them is with IAM, using IAM credentials. So if you're coming in as a federated user, as an example, you can leverage those IAM credentials to get access to those methods. Another one is Cognito user pools. And Cognito can also be used with Web Identity uh, Federation providers to provide uh, IAM credentials so you can get access to your methods. And then lastly, you can use custom authorizers with API Gateway. So if you want to, you know, include something into an authorization header of a request and then validate that somehow, maybe th through a JSON web token as an example, API Gateway can provide security that way as well. When you put a Lambda function behind uh, an API Gateway, oh, 
Uh, next thing, custom domain names can completely be used here at both levels. Uh, AWS Certificate Manager supports CloudFront, and you can import your custom TLS certificates into Amazon API Gateway so that you can have custom domain names across the, the board here for both, uh, for both types of data that you'll be interacting with. And then API Gateway has a trust policy so that only API Gateway has authority or the privileges to invoke Lambda functions, the Lambda function that you designate. And then Lambda functions, as you probably know, also run with execution roles, right? So you can ensure that these Lambda functions that are being called only have access to the services that they need. So security is handled a little bit differently. If you need additional security, application layer security at an API Gateway layer, one strategy that, that is a, a common pattern is to create an, an additional CloudFront distribution, put that in front of API Gateway, and attach AWS WAF to that for cross-site scripting attacks or SQL injection attacks and, and attacks of that sort. To do that, obviously, CloudFront needs to be configured to use HTTPS to interact with API Gateway on the back end, obviously. And depending on your handling, your custom domain names, you want to make sure that the host header that's a part of that request is not going to be delivered uh, in the back end to API Gateway for obvious reasons because of the API Gateway name will most likely be the, the host name, uh, will not be the host name that's being requested. From a monitoring perspective, let's talk about logging and monitoring a little bit with this pattern. CloudFront and S3, they both provide access logs in S3. So you can get full logs of all the accesses and all the requests that come into the artifacts up in that static layer. API Gateway and, and Lambda, they actually log to CloudWatch logs. So you kind of get two separate locations for log files in this pattern. But that's easily remedied. Uh, you can send both of these locations to Elasticsearch, which I think is a great destination for log files. You'll get, you know, Amazon's Elasticsearch service will give you a Kibana dashboard and immediate indexing of those log files as you see fit. And certainly there are a lot of good third-party products out there as well that can consolidate those log files. DynamoDB has a feature called DynamoDB Streams, which you can use to provide triggers for your application. That's really useful. You know, depending on your application and the data that it writes to DynamoDB, you might want to be actionable on that and send out notifications or, or the like. So DynamoDB streams can be a really important thing to leverage here. Certainly CloudWatch custom metrics, uh, as we discussed with Lambda. And then CloudTrail for auditing. And I don't know if you guys caught it, but a couple of weeks ago we actually announced that S3 now provides data access auditing events into CloudTrail. So if you want to see every time a file in S3 is being accessed through this pattern or even being written to, those uh, events can show up in CloudTrail now, and you can be actionable on those as well. How about from a deployment perspective? Well, this landscape has grown a lot over the last year. I'm sure you guys are familiar with frameworks like serverless and Apex and Sparta. There are a lot of really great third-party frameworks that are out there and available. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we actually announced our own. It was codenamed Flourish, and now the official name is the AWS Serverless Application Model. And what it allows you to do is define a more complex serverless application comprised of multiple Lambda functions, multiple API methods, and uh, DynamoDB and IAM credentials in a much more efficient syntax that's YAML or JSON-based. So the way this works is locally on a development machine, I can kind of define that template, which is represented in yellow here on the far left of this slide. And I can combine that or package that with my code for my Lambda functions, maybe a Swagger file for my API definitions, as well as any dependencies. And then I can package that and deploy it into S3 through this service. When this service does that, it produces a new version of your template with specific references to an S3 object for that specific version of the deployment. And that's really important. So you kind of get this marriage between a new version of that template and an S3 object that represents all your artifacts. Additional deployments will have its own S3 object, so it's very easy to revert back and forth to previous versions. And then that serverless template can be submitted into CloudFormation. One of the really nice things about this product and this framework is it's built on top of CloudFormation. It's just an extension of that. So if you have CI/CD tools today that interact with CloudFormation or the AWS CLI, they'll work with this framework. 
We've actually, to the AWS CLI, added a couple of commands for this. Uh, AWS CloudFormation package, which is a single command that will take care of all that packaging and produce that new serverless template file that you see in green here that has the references to the specific S3 object, uh, as well as the AWS CloudFormation deploy command, which actually creates the change set for CloudFormation and deploys that. And as you know, you can get more complex with this by leveraging CI/CD tools. So if you wanted to trigger all of this based on a change in a code repository, or if you wanted the uh, change set to be approved before it's deployed, CI/CD tools can certainly uh, be beneficial and can be used to achieve more complex workflows around this. I also want to talk briefly about a couple of features with API Gateway because it's showcased in this pattern. Uh, best practices, use mock integrations for sure if you can, especially in the design phase of your API. Mock integrations are a very easy way for you to kind of model out your API and allow in, you know, the front end to kind of start its development and its interaction with, with your methods. A few weeks ago, we also announced API gateway support for binary payloads, and, and that's really, really important. But the, the size limit there is 10 megabytes, right? So if you're going to be interacting with API Gateway for binary transfers beyond that 10 megabyte limit, maybe really, really large images that you're uploading or downloading as an example through API Gateway, then the best pattern and way to handle that is to leverage signed URLs uh, with S3, hand those off to your application, and then allow the end user of the application to, to interact with S3 directly for those large binary transfers. Uh, asynchronous calls for Lambda greater than 30 seconds. API Gateway, uh, API Gateway is actually built on top of CloudFormation, right? So in this model, uh, you, you still have CloudFormation's limit of a 30-second transaction. So if you have a transaction that extends beyond 30 seconds, we probably need to talk about why it's taking so long. But if you do have that need, just make sure you make an asynchronous call to that API method so that it can return back and then you can check back later from your client to see if that's done. Now, there are a few new API gateway features that I think also enable some new patterns for deploying web applications through API gateway. Um, first of all, there's something called a greedy path or catch-all path variable, uh, in this case shown by the proxy plus in the, in the squiggly brackets. That essentially is a catch-all variable for any child path that you specify in your request. It can be located anywhere in your API. In this case, it's inside of the root. We also have an any method in API Gateway, which stands for any HTTP verb that you might be calling uh, in your method. So that's a really easy way to provide you know, any types of requests that come in. And then there's also proxy integration now with API Gateway, which essentially means that your request and your response doesn't have to be transformed. We'll take the host headers and the body of the request as it comes in and just pass that on to the back end. Now, in this case, in this slide, the back end is a Lambda function that's going to process that request. It doesn't have to be to use these features. It can certainly be just an HTTPS endpoint if you want it to be, an EC2 instance or something like that. Maybe you have an existing API that's deployed on an operating system, and, and you could certainly use this to front end that and to just pass those requests on through. Specifically, we have a framework called the AWS Serverless Express Framework. You can go out and download that off of GitHub uh, in the AWS Labs account. Um, and that allows you to take existing Express applications written in Node.js and deploy those directly into Lambda to take advantage of these features. So it's probably the simplest way to get a web application up and running if you have an existing Express.js application. Okay, let's talk about pattern two, which is batch processing. A few characteristics of batch processing, very large data sets typically uh, handled on a periodic basis, maybe a nightly uh, basis or an hourly basis, uh, to, to process your data. And, and that's a broad term, processing your data. It could be performing calculations on your data, querying your data, maybe enriching your data in some, some respect. Well. Very, very common to do with ETL workloads, and this can certainly be used in lieu or in addition to a lot of ETL workloads, uh, certainly not a replacement for those. 
They're usually very, uh, not very interactive and long-running long and very similar to the Hadoop ecosystem's MapReduce programming model, right? So the things you might use MapReduce for, you might consider this pattern as well to kind of complement or be used instead of some of those. Let's talk about what that pattern looks like. Let's say you have an object that's going to be delivered into S3, and it's a really big object. You know, Lambda has an execution timeout of five minutes, right? So if I give a one terabyte file, let's say, to a Lambda function, it's probably going to take more than five minutes to process that. So in this pattern, what we do is we create a splitter function. So as that file, large file, is dropped in the S3 bucket, this Lambda function's sole job is to take that file and split it up somehow, maybe by size, by lines, whatever the case may be that you need, and then deliver that to cascading mapper functions. So these subsets of this file will be delivered to the mapper functions. They'll process it, do whatever you want the, the batch processing application to do, and they'll deliver the results into DynamoDB. Then you'll have a reducer function that kind of collects all of those results from all of the mapper functions and stores the results somewhere, in this case, S3. So this model and this pattern is very dependent, and, and the key to it really, as we said before with Lambda functions, is cascading those mapper functions. Those are really the unit of scale in this particular pattern. When should you use this pattern over a MapReduce or uh, a Hadoop uh, MapReduce type, type solution? Well, I think a lot of it depends on your, where your level of expertise is, where your areas of expertise are. You know, if you have expertise in SQL and, and Hadoop and Spark and Presto and those types of services, absolutely use those. But if you don't, if your expertise is more around the Lambda languages like Python or Node, this can be a really great way to kind of achieve the same levels of efficiencies. The speed of this pattern is directly proportional to the number of concurrent Lambda functions that you have set in your account. And we'll talk about that in an example here in just a minute. You can really use any of our persistent data store services as that intermediate storage to collect all of the results of your mapper, mapper functions. And we have actually started a new project on our AWS Labs GitHub site uh, called the Lambda MapReduce Reference Architecture. I've provided a link to you, uh, for you here on this slide to that, um, that, that really builds upon this, this same pattern and this same model. That particular reference architecture doesn't really use a splitter function, uh, so that's one difference, but it does actually use S3 as the, the storage location for all of the, the mapper functions to deliver to and the reducer functions to work from. So if you need to run all of this inside of a VPC, that can be a really good approach. So lastly, I'll just leave you with an example uh, uh, that we did based on this pattern. We took a 200-gigabyte Google Ngram, the 3-Ngram data set. Uh, we normalized it a little bit, stored it in an S3 bucket, and then we processed that with this pattern. So 200 gigabytes. We did it from an AWS account that had 1,000 concurrent Lambda functions, and it took nine minutes to go through and to process that entire data set, to do some calculations on the data and some summations, and return the results. So really, really efficient and absolutely up to par to the types of performance you would see with some of the in-memory Hadoop ecosystem solutions like Spark and Presto. And it all totaled up for a cost of $7.06, which I think is fairly compelling. But also keep in mind, this is a pay-per-execution model, right? So if you're not doing this, if you're doing this on a nightly basis, if you're not doing this regularly, then you won't pay for those costs. Okay, I'm going to hand it over to my trade to take you through the third pattern. Thank you, Drew. So let's look at some of the common characteristics of stream processing applications. So imagine that you have a, a fleet of sensors out in the field, and they're generating measurements every few seconds. What you might imagine there is you're going to get messages or readings or measurements at a very high data ingest rate. And your requirements might be to take those messages and analyze them in near real time. So you want to make sure that the time between ingest and the analytics is as short as possible. You may also have spiky traffic. So imagine that field of devices is not always connected to the network, or they might produce traffic that is spiky in nature. And you want to architect your solution to make sure that you can handle those, those transient spikes and valleys. Right? Oftentimes, when you're dealing with streaming applications, you want to make sure that every message that comes in is stored durably until you have time to handle them. And you can make sure that every message is counted. So it's important to do that. And very often, but not always, message ordering is important. 
So imagine that you have a stream of transactions. It's important for you to handle those transactions in a sequential manner. And those could be characteristics of a stream processing applications that we see across our customers. So how do you handle that in a serverless fashion? Here's an example architecture that puts that together. And the use case we're imagining here is that you have those same fleet of sensors in the field. They're generating some sort of physical measurement. Imagine that's a temperature. And our requirement here is to aggregate those temperature measurements and average them over a period like one minute and generate those aggregated results out every five minutes. That's the use case we are implementing here. And the way we realize that is to use a producer, and that's using the KPL library, the Kinesis producer library, to submit those measurements to a Kinesis stream. We have defined the Kinesis stream as the event source for our processor lambda function. That processor lambda function performs a one pass through the measurements that are coming in and stores the intermediate results into S3. Again, we're using S3 as the persistent store. You could have used DynamoDB or Elasticash or any other service like a database for that. And then we have the separate path at the bottom, and that's the scheduled path. That's using CloudWatch events, scheduled to run every five minutes. And that triggers a scheduler function whose sole job is to sp spin off a number of parallel dump functions, which go ahead and take the intermediate results and produce final aggregated results in another S3 bucket. Right? So this example here meets the requirement that we had. A couple of considerations to remember. When you're using Kinesis to trigger Lambda functions, it's important to note that the number of parallel Lambda invocations that you'll get is equal to the number of shards in your stream. So remember that the unit of scale for Kinesis is a shard, and that has a certain amount of capacity. So if you have five shards, you'll get five concurrent Lambda functions. Now, that means that each concurrent Lambda function needs to keep up with the capacity of a shard. And if, if you find that you can't do that, then you might want to consider what's called the fan-out pattern, where you have the first function, and you split the logic into two parts. The first function's job is to pick messages off the shard as fast as it can, and then split those messages up into chunks and invoke the second set of Lambda functions in parallel, so that you can now increase your throughput but what we've lost as a result is message ordering. So it's a trade-off. It depends on your application if this is a good pattern or not. A little bit more about fan-out pattern. The capacity of a, of a shard in a Kinesis stream comes out to 1,000 records per second or up to 1 MB per second of data. So really, these are two envelopes that you have. And it's important to see which of these envelopes is a, is a consideration for your app and whether Lambda is keeping up with that peak capacity. If you find that you can't keep up with that, that's a good place to actually introduce the fan-out pattern. And if you're looking at implementing the fan-out pattern, consider using synchronous invocations of Lambda in parallel. And if you're using Node.js, there's a great project called Rcoil that lets you do this quite easily and handle errors. Again, it's important to handle errors because you're interested in message durability. And one pattern that you can use for that is to use what's called a dead letter queue. So any messages that could not be handled you put those in a queue, and you handle them in an offline or a separate process. So that's a common pattern that we see out there. A couple of best practices. When you configure Kinesis to trigger Lambda, there's also something called the batch size. What this defines is the number of messages or number of records that will be batched together and submitted to Lambda in one invocation. The default is 100, but for some high-throughput use cases, you might want to increase that batch size higher. What that does is it, it sends more records per invocation. And one of the ways that we charge you for Lambda is by the number of invocations. So in doing this, you can actually reduce your Lambda cost quite a bit. Another thing to make sure you remember is that you need to tune the memory settings of your Lambda function. When you increase the memory setting of your Lambda function, you also correspondingly give that Lambda function more CPU. So this could be a good way for you to deal with problems where you can't keep up with the load, and you can increase the CPU by increasing the memory, and you might be able to keep up with the rate of messages coming in, and you might avoid the fan-out pattern. And finally, I've talked about this. It's always a great idea to use the Kinesis producer library when you're sending messages to Kinesis, because what that does is it, it packs multiple messages into one record and lets you efficiently use the capacity of your stream to the fullest extent. So if you have very small messages, you kind of pack them into one record, multiple messages into one record, and you can use, increase your throughput. 
How do you monitor the stream processing pipeline we talked about? Of course, you have the standard tools at your disposal. And one of the important metrics to keep an eye on is the kinesis iterator age milliseconds metric. If you're doing things right, the metric will look something like this. You have a steady state of zero with very transient spikes that indicate some intermittent problem in handling the data. But if you see your metric go like this, a staircase function, it's a surefire indication that you're not keeping up with your message rate. And this is a time when you want to look at optimizing the work that you do in your Lambda function or to consider the fan-out pattern. The pattern we presented earlier really has Lambda code that you're executing. But what if you said that, look, I don't want to write that code. Then an alternative pattern is to use Kinesis Analytics. Kinesis Analytics is the simplest way for you to analyze data that's streaming in. And the way it works is you define an application in Kinesis Analytics. You define the data source, in this case, a Kinesis stream, the same stream that we had earlier. And you define the destination, which is an S3 bucket. And you represent your processing logic in SQL, as you can see in this example. So we have the same kind of time windowing functions, and those are represented by the yellow text there. What you're doing is you're taking the timestamp, flooring it down to get the minute that the measurement should belong to, and then you're doing the aggregation. That's the blue text. You're calculating the sum, and you're calculating the number of messages that you've seen, so you can later do an average. And you're grouping that by the device ID. So this pipeline essentially does the same function that we had in the first pipeline, but it does it without having to manage and worry about things like, how do I fan out? How do I scale to match the needs? So it takes on more of the work from you. We wanted to do a cost comparison between a server-less approach and a server-based approach. And in order to do that, we had to send some sort of representative traffic. And we settled on this traffic model. This is a six-hour traffic model, which peaks at 50,000 messages per second. And it has a steady-state baseline of 10,000 messages per second. And we extrapolated from that six-hour run to see what the cost would be over a 30-day month. And in this example, you see how the cost broke out. On the serverless side, we are using a Kinesis stream with five shards. And that was good enough to handle the 50,000 messages per second because we are packing multiple messages into one record. And the cost came out to be a little over $400 a month. On the server-based side, we're using Kines Kafka to actually collect the me messages. We're using Zookeeper to manage the cluster, so we have a three-node cluster of each of these. And we have one consumer that's processing this. And the cost on demand comes out to a little over $730. But if you change to the one-year reserved instance purchasing model, that cost drops down to about $450, right? So the key to remember here is when you're using serverless model, your unit of scale is quite different from servers. You're scaling based on the traffic that comes in. So if your traffic pattern is variable, you come out ahead. With the server-based side, your unit of scale is server. So you have to worry about utilization. Am I using the service to the fullest extent possible? So you also have to worry a lot about operations. And I didn't, I didn't actually account for the operational cost, but Ajoy later will talk about how that changes in a serverless world. AWS provides a number of services that are related. So we've talked a bit about Kinesis, but there's also SQS and SNS that can let you process messages that are coming in. And this eye chart here attempts to compare certain attributes of those. I'd like to highlight two of those. One of those is message ordering. So Kinesis guarantees that messages in a shard will be strictly ordered. With SQS, you have two choices now. The standard queues, which do best effort ordering, and the FIFO queues, which actually guarantee the message ordering within what is called a message group. With SNS, of course, you don't get message ordering at all. Another aspect I want to highlight is how the messages are processed. You looked at how Kinesis and SQS both need the ability to write a consumer or a reader. So with Kinesis, you can have that being Lambda. With SQS, you need to write something that reads messages. While SNS actually comes built in with a number of destination types. So you can send messages to SMS, email, even SQS, and of course, Lambda. So which of these is suitable for your use case really depends. So use this chart as a way to decide which one's best for you. If you're familiar with big data processing, there's a concept called Lambda architecture. Not the same as AWS Lambda, but Lambda architecture. And the gist of that is you're looking at taking your data pipe processing pipeline and splitting that up into batch and speed layers. And the concept that Drew talked about with batch processing, as well as the concept I talked about, can be combined to give you a big data Lambda architecture. Automation now, the next pattern. So this is really a pattern that involves a number of different types of use cases. 
So examples would be you need to respond to alarms or events, you need to schedule periodic jobs, or you need to audit and notify on anomalies that happen in your environment, or you want to extend AWS functionality, something that we haven't built, but you wish that you want to actually control that. And you want to do all of these while being, making sure that you're highly available and you're scalable, right? So how do you do that? And I'm going to show you a couple of examples of automation patterns. They cover the gamut of some of the use cases that we talked about here. And the idea is that you get inspired by that and you can apply that to the problems that crop up in your environment. The first example is extending AWS functionality. So in this example, you know that when you launch an EC2 instance, you get a DNS name, but that's not really very friendly because it has an IP address embedded in that. But what if you wanted to have a friendly name associated with that EC2 instance, and you want that name to be resolvable when the EC2 instance is running, but not resolvable when the instance is not running? So the way you achieve that dynamic DNS capacity is by setting up uh, an EC2 instance change event that is triggering a CloudWatch events rule, and the cloud.event rule is now going to trigger a Lambda function, and the code in the Lambda function is going to call Route 53 APIs to add a name, a name, an A record with the name, and the private IP of the EC2 instance that just started or changed state. And you can take that name from a tag on that EC2 instance. In this example, I use the name tag CNAME. Whatever the value is, that makes it into Route 53 and is resolvable now. When the EC2 instance changes state, so it goes from running to stop, or running to terminated, then you go ahead and remove that entry from Route 53, so you achieve the use case. This example also shows us saving some state in DynamoDB. The idea here is that we want to store some metadata because we can then clean up that Route 53 entry when the instance stops. Another example is what we call a S3-driven data flow. And in this example, the use case is that users are uploading images to an S3 bucket but what you need to do is actually trigger off that upload and process those images to resize them or generate thumbnails or whatever, right? So in this example, you can create a rule in S3 that triggers a Lambda function upon an object upload to the put object. That Lambda function does the work required to process that image that just got uploaded. So it resizes the images and stores the final output right back into S3. So this is a common pattern, and it can be used for many other use cases. For example, Twitter Periscope uses this to analyze content that's uploaded by users for appropriateness, and it rejects any messages that should not be published onto the final streams. So that's an example of using S3 data-driven workflows. And finally, I want to talk to you about the audit and notification use case. And here I would like to highlight the great open source project called Cloud Custodian. This is a project that's sponsored by Capital One. They essentially saw that there were lots of scripts that they were managing to audit their environment. So they felt that it would make a lot of sense to create one tool where you could describe all the rules for your environment. So example would be of a rule would be that, let us say that you want to enforce that all EBS volumes that are ever created are encrypted. So you can actually define that in a template. And what Cloud Custodian will do is take that template and create one or more Lambda functions in your environment. Those Lambda functions are triggered on various different events. For example, they could trigger on CloudWatch events. They could clear, trigger on CloudTrail events, as well as on CloudWatch log, log entries. And those triggers will trigger the Lambda function. The Lambda function continuously checks against the compliance rule that you defined. And then if anomalies are found, you can define actions that it should take. So for example, in the EBS volume encryption use case, you might define the action as terminate the instance because we don't want any instances with unencrypted EBS volumes. You could also define an action that says notify me, and that could be done through SNS. So if you're finding yourself creating a lot of scripts, you might want to step back and see if Cloud Custodian is a good match for your use case. A couple of best practices when you're dealing with automation. Do document how you can stop the event flow for your automation. So how do you disable the event flow for your automation? so that you can troubleshoot your automation when something goes wrong. Oftentimes, when you're doing automation, you're calling AWS APIs. So do be aware that we do throttle APIs. So you want to handle those API throttle responses in a graceful manner. So the, the usual advice we give people is to have an exponential back-off algorithm. And if you're using our AWS SDKs, they will take care of this automatically. So it's a great idea to use our AWS SDKs. And finally, like Drew mentioned, 
It's important, especially in the case of automation, to publish custom CloudWatch metrics, which make operational sense for you. So if you're having an automation that does periodic snapshotting of EBS volumes, it would be a great idea to publish how many volumes were successfully snapshotted, how many failed, and you can then alarm on those and notify people if something should go wrong. Now I'd like to invite Ajoy to talk about how at BMC they realized a serverless pattern for security and DevOps automation. Thank you. Thank you. It feels great to be here and uh, be able to tell you the story of our cloud journey. Uh, so as you know, BMC is, has been a pretty well-known player in data center automation, cloud automation, but mainly on on-premise solutions. Next month, we are about to release a new cloud service, uh, which is uh, going to be security and automation as a service in cloud. I'm Ajoy Kumar, and I'm going to talk about our journey in terms of how we build this cloud service in a very agile manner and how serverless architecture and Lambda services were a key factor in really uh, doing this. I'm going to talk about three things. Uh, I'll talk about uh, our use case, architecture, uh, and then key learnings. Uh, so let's uh, deep dive on our journey here. Uh, earlier this year, we started thinking about uh, what, what, what would a cloud uh, security and compliance solution would look like based on talking to a few of our customers. Uh, we had four goals, essentially, uh, and, and these are very typical goals of any uh, SaaS service. Uh, basically, support rap rapid iteration, rapid changes like weekly deliveries, scale in terms of number of tenants, amount of data we are uh, consuming, uh, support sophisticated logic applications, which you can extend the product and obviously uh, economically scalable. So let me talk about the specific use case. What exactly does it mean that you want to do CI-CD integration uh, of compliance into DevOps pipeline. So let me start with what a typical DevOps pipeline looks like. You have a build phase, a test phase, and a deploy phase. And it, typically what happens is in each of these phases, you're creating a lot of artifacts here. Uh, for example, in the build phase, you could be creating Docker containers or infrastructure as code like CloudFormation template. And you really need to understand how, how are you governing these, how are you... Uh, basically making sure uh, whatever artifacts you're generating, uh, they are secure. For example, uh, is my Docker container secure if I am building it out uh, through a build process? Uh, if I am creating cloud formation templates, uh, am I using the right set of uh, instance type for EC2? Uh, there are all these, uh, all these really compliance checks which need to be done right after a build just happens. Uh, that's part of the automation uh, use case which we want to uh, which we want to build as a part of this service. Uh, this, the third part of the phase is really when you deploy your uh, software to cloud. Uh, again, here uh, after you have deployed the code, you want to check: uh, Did I uh, is is my cloud secure? Did somebody make a change in infrastructure as a code and left a firewall uh, port open? Uh, these are all questions which. Uh, really need to be tackled in the, in the DevOps pipeline and not typically what is done today at, in production. So that's what, uh, that's what is our key, really, the key, key use cases that we are solving, uh, where we want to consume any type of data from a DevOps pipeline, uh, whether it's uh, the container data, the metadata about containers, uh, the cloud, uh, the test cases, and so on, or the test case results, and be able to uh, do some sort of application uh, business logic on that data, and then be able to tell you the results uh, in terms of what are some of the rules that passed and what, what didn't pass. Uh, so that's really the key goal of this use case uh, which we are trying to build. Uh, if you see the common pattern across all this from an architecture perspective uh, is essentially you want to collect the data, and collect at massive scale because you're you're talking about a SaaS service collecting from hundreds of tenants, each of them running uh, dozens of pipelines. So you want to collect all this data, then you want to really uh, build applications on top of it, do some processing, uh, and then show the results 
to the to the customers. So then uh, we started thinking about building this architecture in a traditional way, uh, which is really uh, build these, some of these clusters here like Nginx, Kafka, Cassandra, Elasticsearch, some of the Zookeeper, Vault. And what we started realizing that we are spending a lot of time in building infrastructure uh, and very little time focusing on an application. Uh, the green box there is our real application, uh, which is really doing our compliance and security checks. Uh, but then we realized, why are we spending all this time? Uh, but, but that's where we started really looking at, uh, uh, let's start uh, understanding how to build these clusters, how we will operate them in production. So while we were busy doing that, uh, and this is really true, uh, the product management comes back and tells us that, hey, there are some uh, customer validations we need to do, and can you get it done in a month? So that's when we pivoted on our architecture, and we said, let's do something uh, more disruptive here, and let's see how what we can do with lambdas and uh, serverless architecture. So what you see here is really uh, the architecture which we built uh, in a month, uh, and now we are continuously evol evolving. Uh, so let me just describe you, to you very quickly what this is. On the far left, uh, you see collectors which are collecting data from your DevOps pipelines, from your cloud, uh, and all, all, all kinds of data getting ingested into API Gateway. Uh, you do see an ingest Lambda, uh, which is uh, pushing all that data into Kinesis. Uh, so that's the part of data where data is flowing into the Kinesis. Uh, note that this is slightly different from what Maitreya described. Uh, we are not using KPL, but we are using uh, a Lambda function essentially to do a lot of uh, data enrichment uh, and uh, tenant uh, context uh, uh, in that Lambda. Once, once all the data is available on the Kinesis, you see on the far right, uh, the green things there, which are applications, which are like policies, rules, uh, which are running on those that data. Uh, and, and once that data, the, the rules are evaluated, it gets stored in Amazon uh, DynamoDB and S3. And then there is another Lambda function uh, which runs on, those, on that database, which is continuously indexing it uh, and pushing it into the Elasticsearch. So what you see here is the entire data pipeline is really a series of Lambda function. Ingest Lambda, application, which is also Lambda, which is getting triggered as data comes in. And then finally, I, didn't, I want to make sure I talk about the API. Uh, the, this is a completely API-driven system. Uh, so what you see at the far uh, bo bottom uh, left, uh, all our public APIs are also follow the pattern of a gateway and the Lambda functions behind it. Uh, we, we, we defined all our APIs in Swagger, uh, and essentially uh, this completes basically all the, uh, the, the core architecture of our product. Now what you see here is the benefits of it are obvious. I mean, we were able to do this amazingly in, 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 in less than four weeks. Uh, so that's the beauty of Lambda, that instead of thinking about infrastructure, Kafka and Cassandra and managing operating clusters, worrying about security, patches, monitoring, uh, we, we are not doing any of that. We are just, I mean, we have a small team of developers thinking about how do I really add business value? How do I think about new services, new applications to focus, and how do I deliver that functionality continuously? So that's what was our aha moment uh, when we built this architecture. And last six months, we've had a number of trials. Uh, next month, we will be uh, actually going live with this. So let's, let me just review some of the patterns. Uh, the top two patterns which I am thoroughly impressed with is really the, uh, the, the API pattern, uh, which is having an API gateway and lambdas is amazing. Uh, you, we basically churn out APIs uh, at an amazing speed here. The second most valuable or, or equally valuable is really ability to build new applications. So we have data coming into the Kinesis stream and you have multiple lambdas which are getting uh, invoked. So that's also an amazing pattern which we have uh, really leveraged here in our architecture. I'll skip some of these other things. These are pretty obvious. The scaling, you already heard, we use fanouts. Uh, so uh, the scale is really amazing. I mean, we have uh, several hundred lambdas simultaneously uh, ingesting the data as we really scaled from a few tenants to like 50 to 100 tenants in our load testing. Uh, similarly, all our applications got scaled up to close to four, 500 lambdas. So essentially, 
uh, we are we are achieving uh, massive scalability with this architecture and again i wanted to point out without really doing anything at the infra level because if you did this with servers in a traditional ec2 world you'd be doing a lot of uh, things like asgs and thinking about metrics and all that this is all this this just happens automatically so that's really the core core message i wanted to bring about here uh, on uh, we have been talking about application architecture so on the left side of the screen is all the things we have used beyond lambda so these are all managed services again the core principle is the same we don't want to deal with infrastructure we want to do we, we want to leave that to amazon uh, we want to really focus more on our business uh, use cases what i wanted to uh, talk to you about is in addition to application architecture our operations architecture is also pretty much serverless uh, so essentially uh, what we are using is cloudwatch we are using uh, lambda uh, we, are, we are using logs in lambda and building application metrics we are passing them into cloudwatch and then we are generating uh, S uh, uh, sns and ses uh, events if some some activity uh, goes on which is uh, which which doesn't align okay okay let me switch to uh, operations side here uh, so i have been talking about we are doing no infrastructure operations uh, there is a myth about no ops and i wanted to clarify here uh, that uh, you still need to do operations even though you are using serverless uh, essentially now you are doing more application operations so for example is your lambdas or all your services up and running uh, whenever data is fed in you really need to watch those kinds of metrics are you getting 5xs errors in your api calls how is my uh, lat latency doing so all these are application metrics which you do want to really continuously measure and we, we so so you do uh, you do have operations but they are mostly they are all at the application level uh, and none at the infrastructure level so that's the really key benefit we have been deriving our operations team uh, at this point is uh, very very small uh, essentially because is uh, when we do devops pipelines every week or every few days and push new versions uh, of our lambda functions that's all we are really uh, pushing into the production i want to close this with a few key learnings of what we have uh, learned uh, basically uh, using serverless patterns in architecture is really great uh, the 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 biggest value in my mind is the agility or the speed of innovation so in some sense we are we are all now talking the language or all our conversations are all about how do i what, what does a customer want and how do i really bring the next feature in by making a new lambda version and then using our devops ci cd automation to push a new lambda so th that's where the whole innovation angle of la uh, uh, of lambda really helps uh, so that's that's really what i see is Uh, the 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 most useful uh, or the most impactful feature uh, obviously the uh, we talked about operations uh, where we are really doing app ops and not 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 none at all on infrastructure ops so no servers no security patching none of that really uh, matters security does matter so we are actually uh, doing security but again at the application level at the api gateway level uh, and so on cost savings we are getting a huge cost savings because we have a very small devops team we are not managing six clusters or eight clusters like i talked before if we had chosen a different architecture uh, we don't have any servers so that's the beauty of this uh, if there is no data then if uh, then we we are not any incurring any costs as customers uh, really are committing to their pipelines we will see more data coming in these lambdas really kick in and uh, we we generate our results Uh, so it works really nicely uh, uh, basically in terms of how we have designed the serverless architecture finally i just wanted to uh, mention that uh, we are really impressed with uh, what we have achieved we have done a lot of load testing next month we will be going live with this service uh, to do compliance checks in our devops pipeline and we are looking at really building a lot more additional services uh, based on our learnings from what we have done in the last 7 uh, 8 months Uh, of putting together this architecture
Thank you. Guys, that's pretty much it. I want to thank you all very much for sticking it out past 5 p.m. I know you have a pub crawl to get to. These are a few related sessions that I just wanted to point out around serverless technologies. We're going to be doing a repeat of this one on Friday. Uh, Chalice is, is a really good one. It's our serverless Python-based web framework that you can use to deploy web applications. And there's also a workshop building a serverless application that I would strongly recommend going to on Thursday at a couple of different times. Thank you very much. Please feel free to complete your evaluations. And if you have any questions, we're going to hang around up here. Feel free to come on up. Thank you.